Welcome back, warriors. Quay Nin Deluisi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this podcast, The Warrior Life. We cover everything from native sovereignty, treaties and land back, to decolonization, reconciliation, and how to support the struggle. So if you're interested in hearing from awesome native people from our sovereign nations all over Turtle Island about indigenous resistance, resurgence and revitalization, then this is the podcast for you. And don't forget, there are so many free ways to support this podcast. You can like it, you can give it five stars on your podcast app, or share it on your social media. And today's podcast is someone that you have seen all over social media and mainstream media. We've even been on some of the same panels. So stay tuned. She has a really exciting project to share with all of us. I am so excited for today's podcast. One of the reasons why I even do this podcast is to meet kick-ass Native people doing really awesome things. And today's guest is kick-ass amongst other things. And you've likely seen her all over the place, all over mainstream media. Riley Yesno is an Indigenous woman doing her PhD at the University of Toronto in political science, which is so awesome because I am also in the Department of Political Science. She writes for the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, the New York Times, and a whole bunch of other places. And she also is a regular media commentator on the CBC and a billion other things. Welcome to the Warrior Life podcast, Riley. Ani, hi. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I have just been waiting for this forever, but you know what it's like. We're so engaged in everything, it's hard to actually fit everything in, but I'm so glad that you're here. But first, before we get into it, because I always have 8 billion questions for people, I'd like to offer you an opportunity to introduce yourself however you like. For sure. Thank you, Miigwech. So, Ani, bonjour, Riley, Yesno, Nindijnikas, Yamatung First Nation. I said, hello, my name is Riley Yesno. I'm from Amatung First Nation in Treaty 9 territory. It's about, for anybody familiar with Northern Ontario geography, about 400 or so kilometers north of Thunder Bay. And I'm currently living and working in Toronto. And I said, I'm doing well. So, Riley, tell me about your First Nation and what that community is like. Yeah. Oh, I love to talk about Fort Hope. Fort Hope, yeah, as I mentioned, it's north of Thunder Bay. It's a fly-in community. About a thousand people or so live there. And it's where I grew up for many years of my childhood. I consider the north in general home. So like I grew up in Fort Hope until I was like maybe six or seven and then moved to Thunder Bay and went to school in Thunder Bay. And so Fort Hope is like beautiful. Like it's just right in the middle of the Boreal. It's like almost untouched land for as long as you can see. It is like, actually, I feel like so privileged and grateful to grow up there, which like a lot of people, especially I think non-Indigenous people scratch their heads at because like their picture that they have in their mind of what the reserve is, especially like flying communities with boil water advisories, which my community is, is like a really dire one. And there are certainly no shortage of social or political issues that need to be solved there. But at the same time, like when I think about where I'm most connected, I definitely go back to Fort Hope. Yeah, that's where I think of in the North. And um It's like also a really, it was really like formative for me politically because it's also like the home of like 
where there's a bunch of like mining negotiations. So folks might've heard of the Ring of Fire. Yeah, Hope is right on the Ring of Fire and is one of the nine or so communities very directly implicated in it. And one of two communities that have been trying to hold up development for a really long time with at least to, to wait for proper consultation and environmental checks and balances and everything. So it's like a really important place also, I think, in the larger Indigenous land advocacy struggle. I also didn't know that you lived for some time in Thunder Bay. All of the attention has been on Thunder Bay lately. There's racism, police racism, and sadly deaths and everything else. How long were you in Thunder Bay and what was it like? Did you see all of that? Yeah, yeah. So Thunder Bay, yeah, I consider like my family, most of my family still lives there and stuff. So like I go back relatively frequently. And it's definitely the place that I think is like, like the podcast, the stories, they all don't lie. Like all of those conditions are so dire. And I think it's really funny because Tanya Talaga spells this out in like the first chapter of Seven Fallen Feathers, but it's almost like an apartheid city in the way, because Thunder Bay is like two cities, Fort William and Port Arthur that are amalgamated together. And Fort William is like staunchly working class, low income, funnily enough, where the res is. And then on the other side of town, you have Port Arthur, which is like million dollar waterfront properties, super old money, wealthy Victorian homes. And so it's like a city where like class divide and class divide based on race was like always so palpable. And I grew up on the West Fort side of town or the Port Ar- or the Fort William side of town. And yeah, like when folks talk about like the young people who died in Thunder Bay, like those are students that like my mom taught at the at DFC oh. high school. And so it's like one of those communities that if you're, in, especially if you're indigenous in Thunder Bay, other indigenous people in Thunder Bay. And so all those stories are your stories as well. And it's, it's a really like one, again, one of my most, I think, beautiful places in the whole country, if not the whole world, but like, it's definitely a place with a lot of struggle. Isn't that the contradiction though? You think of all of our territories all over Turtle Island, and just like you're describing, they're beautiful. They're just undescribably beautiful, and they have so many things to offer. We have all of these relationships with plants and animals and other nations. And in terms of what people call resources, that's the modern government language, and I even hate how that's stated. Canada is considered one of the wealthiest countries in the world, yet you look at places like Thunder Bay and some of our First Nations, and you wouldn't know that. You would think that Canada was one of the poorest countries in the world. And to me, I find that a real contradiction, because every time I've gone to Thunder Bay, it's like, this place is so beautiful. How can it have so much racism in it? Still, even though people talk about reconciliation and knowledge and awareness, Do you find that anything's changed from the time that you lived there till now? Yeah, I think certainly. And it's, but the thing that's frustrating, of course, is that as an impatient, as a, I've been called an an impatient activist many times, and that did resonate because (laughs) I feel like there has been changes even from when I was in high school, which to be honest, is not that long ago. But like at the time, like when I was growing up there, because I'm a white Indigenous person, and especially in Thunder Bay, where like indigeneity is so visible, it was really easy for me to pass off as, I don't know, Italian or something. And so because of that, like, I would see like people, the like, 
the violence that indigenous people face was not only happening like to my family members and to my community members and all these things, but then white people in Thunder Bay would feel like that they could talk to me about like their racist feelings about indigenous people. And so it was like this, like the for my youth, at least in Thunder Bay, it was this like place of indigeneity being like great deep shame and like really big hiding. And it was something that like, I wasn't like, I knew I was indigenous and like, I was okay to do it in the complete claim it in the confines of my home. But outside of that was like not doing it. And so it's wild now the way that in 10 years or something, and this is the case in Thunder Bay, but I think it is like all across Canada, that to be indigenous has become like something that is almost trendy. There's so many conversations about people claiming fake indigenous identity. (laughs) that comes into part of it but it's wild to me because growing up it was not a cool thing or a beneficial thing or anything to be indigenous in that way at least and so now that has shifted I think the political landscape in Thunder Bay is still like where it was maybe five years ago like it's an old boys club and so I think about this right now with the municipal elections going on and it's like the same places again and again which I feel like is the same all across Canada too or similar. And, but the people on the ground, like there's grassroots organizing happening in Thunder Bay. That is unbelievable that I only began to see seeds of when I was young and growing up there and have now sprouted into these full blown communities of people like doing just the most amazing kick-ass work. So yeah, things have definitely shifted, but like maybe not at the pace that like in my dreams for Thunder Bay, I imagine. (laughs) Yeah, but it's also interesting to hear from someone from who lived in Thunder Bay to see the differences and to be able to speak to, yeah, all of this is still going on. Everything that you see in the media, every all of the struggles and that those are very lived realities for people on the ground. Sometimes our politics is so distant. If you're looking at a national indigenous organization or even a regional one, you don't really get a sense of what the conditions are on the ground. And that's why I've always been a proponent of talk to the people on the ground first, a local area. And so I'm glad that you were on here to be able to do that because I think that's amazing. Now, did you do all of your schooling, like your K to 12 schooling in Thunder Bay? I did. Yeah. Okay. So what made you want to go to university and, or be interested in native politics? Yeah. Oh man. I feel like There's a couple things for sure. So one is that, like I'll say, I, me and my cousin, who's my age as well, are like the first Indigenous members of our family to get a university degree. So I consider myself like first gen in many ways. And so like this idea, like it was always just something that besides the fact that my grandmother, who was a residential school survivor, she worked really hard to make sure that her kids, so like my dad and all my aunts and uncles, that they all like at least had high school educations. There was like a real value instilled that education is really important and all these things and felt like it was always just, I was like growing up because of that, I was like, yeah, of course I'm going to university. Like, of course I am. And that was like always the way I felt about it. But then also, like, I didn't know necessarily what until I was like, maybe in the 10th grade of high school. So I was 15. And I was appointed to the Prime Minister's Youth Council. And this is something I talk about all the time. And like, I have worked, I think, hard to try and make myself like distance be like, just for him, I don't like the president. Yeah, I <laughs> like, I think it was really formative for me because I went in there and when I applied, I thought I was going to do um, 
arts. I applied to OCAD for their cross-disciplinary arts program. And I was really interested in the idea of political art and graffiti art and all of this stuff. And then I got on the Prime Minister's Youth Council and it really, like I was really sold on this idea that politics was like the avenue and especially elected politics was the avenue for change. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like this fire in my belly and like I switched my degrees and like I didn't end up actually and thinking that elected politics was the ultimate vehicle for change, <laughs> but it did lead me down into this like political consciousness that I still really love and value today and think is really important. And so it set me on that path at least. That's cool. Whenever you talk to advocates, you know, native advocates, I always want to know the backstory because it's always usually something similar. Like their parents or grandparents were working for Métis rights or native rights. And then, so you got exposed to it or like what you were saying and being engaged in politics, like Canadian or provincial politics. And so it's almost like the political bug gets planted. And then even if you don't go on the same path, you're still very interested. Like me, when I got out of law school, Justice Canada of all places recruited me. And I was thinking, oh gosh, I don't want to go work for Justice Canada because I'd been an advocate before that. But my family said, you know what? Go change it from the inside. I think we all have that idea that we can, that we as individuals can just go change everything. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go do that. And he went from Justice Canada to Indian Affairs. And there was no changing it from the inside. So I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to go back outside. So it's interesting to hear that you did that too. But I don't begrudge what I learned and all of the insights and all of the things I can't talk about, but I can use strategically in advocacy that I do. So you you end up getting something from it, even if it's personally very difficult. That's an amazing experience What was your undergrad degree in? Did you go straight into politics? Yeah, so I did a devil major in Indigenous Indigenous Studies and Political Science. Oh, that's awesome. And where did you do that? I did it at U of T. And so, yeah, I went right from Thunder Bay there. I was on the PMYC while I was doing it. And like my undergrad experience was like really weird because all, again, like the PMYC didn't end up being the end all and be all, but it did open up so many doors for me to meet people and travel and do places that I did actually want to be a part of. And so then instead of sitting around and studying, I don't feel like it was a typical undergrad experience in many ways because like I was like off to Winnipeg one weekend and then off to Regina the next. Next. Yeah. Doing stuff. Yeah. I think my professors were pretty sick of me, like emailing me, like, I need accommodations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this weekend, next weekend, the weekend after, maybe just yeah. all the weekends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. But you, you must have learned so much from that. Like, what an experience. Because I didn't even travel anywhere until my kids were pretty much grown because I had small babies or whatever. And once I did, I, I was just in love with all of the experiences and the people and the places and how much you can learn. But you've had this at such a young age and you're still so super young. That must be invaluable. Oh, yeah. And I to tie it all together, maybe with a boat, like when I came out of the PMYC and like I had like I talk about how like I just didn't believe it. But there's more to the story. Like when I figured out like I got in those rooms, I thought they were extremely violent and horrible, which is like the experience that I think a lot of indigenous, especially women echo being in like these colonial institutions. And that was my experience. But because I wasn't expecting it in any way and I felt so unprepared for it, 
it was like crushing. Like I so believed that then I was like, I've been told my whole life that this is the ultimate change making room. Like I'm sitting at a table with the prime minister and nothing's happening like change must be impossible was how I felt. And like, I considered myself like a bit of a like recovering anarchist for many years after <laughs> that because like, <laughs> I was just like, whatever, I guess it's all. And then like I left and I was still traveling to all these places and I was meeting young people and elders and like people who had been in activist scenes for decades. And they basically like picked me up by the collar, dusted me off. And they were like, no, like, there, there's work happening and better work and places here and knowledge for you to inherit. And they just completely revitalized me and transformed my theories of change and made me believe that change was possible again and all those things. And so like, it like not only was a gift to be able to see so many different lives all around the world, but like it, it fundamentally shaped me as like a young teenager in my early 20s when I was doing all that. That's so important. I think the role of advocates and activists and community members is really an unsung role because think of all of the people in your life that did do just that, that did dust you off and say, don't get discouraged. We're doing work over here and there's work that needs to be done over here. And it's almost a little informal network of people who will pick you back up because I used to joke after I did 10 years in the feds, I was like, oh, I did 10 years in the feds, I'm fully rehabilitated. And, you know, just to be funny, but in actual fact, it is crushing, it's soul crushing. And you think, oh, geez, one, from what you've seen, you think it's never going to change. Mm -hmm. But similarly, it's the community and people around you and advocates who say, you know what, just never mind them and go forward with what you have to do. So it's really nice for me to hear that you had that positive experience because not everybody does. And then they just go away disillusioned. And I wouldn't want that to happen. So yeah. for all the young people that are considering working for the federal provincial government or political agencies, just know that you can use it as a place to learn. You don't have to accept the bad stuff in there. And it's not the be all end all. And I think you really have a good example of all of that. So you got your political science degree, you must have been just so pumped, your family must have been so proud of you, because you said you and your cousin, I think were the only ones or the first ones. Yeah, yeah, we were. And like my, my, so my Gugu, I call her my grandma. Yeah. She like was like, it's so jazzed. And same with my grandfather. He's not like formally educated in that institutional way. But he his he is from the family that were like treaty signatories. So they were always like very politically minded. And like he has done, he's not one of those guys that's I'm gonna run for chief. But like, <laughs> work that he did is wild like you can tell the man is he, he just recently passed but like I am like looking back on like his life and I'm like that man was a philosopher like he oh. wrote about treaties and community consent and consultation in such a way that I still don't see coming out of some of the highest institutions in the land and so it's like one of those experiences too that I think like they were so proud of me and also mm -hmm. at the same time I felt like there was like this reciprocity being given I think in a way that I was like yeah, yeah it was beautiful it is. I like the exchange. We have the same core knowledge. We just pass it on and make it fit current times and we go forward with it. And uh, my gosh, everyone must have just been so proud of you because we just the more native people we have doing these things, the better. And the great thing about you is you didn't just stop at an undergrad degree. You also went on and did your master's. Where did you do that? And what was that about? 
Yeah. So I actually didn't do my master's. I skipped it and went right to the PhD, which I didn't know was possible. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. I had no idea. But like I was in, it was in the middle of the pandemic when I graduated my undergrad degree. So like 2021, I guess. Oh gosh, that was only last year and, or two years ago. And I, I graduated and I was like, I'm in the pandemic. At the time I was living in Newfoundland. So I was out on the East coast and I was just like, I have the world seems to be on fire. I don't know what I want to do. And so I was like, I guess I'll go back to grad school. And I had this idea that I was like really passionate about. So I was like, I really love to be in courses and stuff like that, but I'm confident in what I want to do. This is what I'm passionate about. I think research needs to be done here. And the place to do that, I think is at a PhD. Like it's a thesis level idea I thought I had. And so I it, and the application process was like definitely more demanding than a standard PhD application process with a master's, but it existed. And so I applied and yeah, U of T let me come back for the the PhD. (laughs) Wow. That's phenomenal. Like I've heard of people going from their third year of their undergrad and instead of doing the fourth year, they make their fourth year, their first year in law school. So I knew that, but I guess things in law are different law schools and all that. So I didn't actually know you could just do that. So that's phenomenal. You're going to be like 19 years old when you get your- (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, if I get it in the right time, I'm like aiming for 25, which might be- Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Like uh, just thinking about where you are right now, I can't imagine because I look back on where I was 25 and it's just- You've already accomplished a lifetime of amazing things. That's so awesome. You can't like keep us in suspense. What is the PhD about <laughs> unless it's like super confidential? No, no, not at all. I'm like, it's this idea I've been having for based on all of those travels and all those years that I was talking about where, again, like I just became so convinced that Indigenous young people especially were like some of the most powerful political actors that we have in this country, and not just for Indigenous politics, but especially for in this Canadian landscape, which claims to care so much about Indigenous affairs and reconciliation or whatever, that if that's the case, or if they want to at least posture if that's the case, then they're going to have to be listening to Indigenous youth and Indigenous youth, the fastest growing demographic. And so it's focused on them, really. And basically, the questions I'm asking are like, how do you feel how do you understand reconciliation? Do you feel like we're doing it? And if not, and my sense is for, especially for a lot of young people that know they're not huge fans of reconciliation, then what is? Because like young people are so easily accused, I think, of all of this apathy that they don't act, that like they just want to say no and don't want to provide solutions. But young people have visions and dreams of the future and all of these things and even ways that they think we should get there. They're just so rarely listened to in a really meaningful way. And so I really want, but like I've been so lucky to hear it from my friends and peers all these things for forever and so like I just want to sit with them and interview them and have those stories like collected and hopefully be able to paint some sort of picture of how youth see this country and where they want it to look like instead that's awesome and I feel like it's long overdue one of my pet peeves is when you hear politicians or anybody say youth are the leaders of the future and I'm thinking (laughs) have you not paid attention to anything that's happening on the ground youth are already leaders. They're the ones driving things like climate action. They're the ones driving things like all of the resistance against racism and sexism and homophobia, ableism, all of that. It's just, it's my pet peeve because people use it over and over again. Like we got things right now, but someday if you follow us long enough, 
you too can be a leader. And I was just it like, exactly yeah. like that. <laughs> so I'm so glad that you're doing that. I, and I don't, I can't imagine that anybody else has done anything as significant, especially at a PhD level, because it's going to be a lot of stuff. Is it primarily interviews or do you also do some research along with it? Yeah, so I might do some research. Like I'm doing right now a bit of a textual analysis of the TRC because like my idea is that in saying the reconciliation is dead is that, and people had said very aptly afterwards, was it never alive? And I agree with all of that sentiment around it. But I think also survivors were actually very clear about what their vision of reconciliation was. And it was just never actually operationalized or lived up to in the way that they clearly articulated. Like when you actually read the TRC, it says substantial investment of financial resources. It says healing It's and paints a very clear picture. And Canada instead decided that they wanted flags at half mass and national holidays instead of doing those things. And so it just is, I think that there's a lot to learn from that sort of analysis with that light. So I'm doing that first. And then the next thing I'm going to say is, okay, young people, how do you think of reconciliation? And that can be through a very uh, various ways. Like maybe if I'm nervous about codifying it as if to say yeah. exactly what elders meant. So I feel like interviews probably the best way, but to say, how do those visions line up? And then also like, where is it different? And so, and with the difference ones, that's going to, how I'm going to suggest, I think that like they're pushing it beyond reconciliation. And this is where I have a feeling like things like land back, for example, <laughs> are going to really come in. <laughs> oh my gosh. And everything's incorporated to where people are. Like you think about when I first started in politics as a teenager, you, you, the only way you really got to connect was through your extended family or your community or like a community meeting or some kind of protest or whatever. It yeah. wasn't the same. If you wanted to organize, you had to dial the phone number <laughs> or send a fax to plan things. But now with social media, Gosh. we can get people where they're at. And obviously, we're not all on the same platforms. But you can reach out. Those who are Facebookers, a lot of Native people, Facebookers, oh, yeah. <laughs> you can reach out there. And it's more than just res gossip. And yeah. people who are on TikTok educating or Twitch or like any of these places, we yeah, we can reach them. And I think that's phenomenal. And I also think it's very empowering because we can empower one another, even if we're not from the same nation, even if, say, we didn't grow up on our community because of 60 Scoop or something like that. So I think this is going to be really powerful. And what are you going to use it as? Are you going to be Dr. Pitt? Are you going to be Dr. Professor? Are you like, how do you want to use this? I really, yeah, I've been sitting on this now because I realized that it's wild. I'm in my second year already. And so like, feasibly, the there is a light at the end of the tunnel and I get closer. And so I... I'm not 100% sure. I'm writing a book right now accompanying the PhD, but it's supposed to be like less academic. So I, it's called The Reconciliation Generation. And it's basically more like about my personal reflections on all of it and like the main lessons that I've learned and take with me in my work and all of that. And so it's it's got a lot of the same ideas that like, of course, young people are super empowered, that our elders are radicals and so are we and all of those sorts of things. But it's supposed to be more accessible than 
what I think a research paper often can end up be. So being so I, I'm really enjoying the writing process. I want to see how that works. And then maybe afterwards, I'll consider writing more. And I also really teaching I like I taught my first or TA even my first course like last year Indigenous politics in Canada. And it was amazing. Like the like young people there were like, and not all of them were even young, of course, in university settings, they were just like, so brilliant, and like, so thoughtful. And like, just I asked them, like, at one point, I was like, does everybody know what heteronormativity is and obviously and I was like what even a couple years ago I didn't so yeah I feel like the pace of knowledge and learning is like so high that it's not just even me standing up there and giving a lecture it's yeah like back and forth and like generative I I really loved it yeah and I find youth are far more knowledgeable about all of those kinds of things because they've seen it. They look at the old fogies and say, you know what? Once the old fogies are gone, there's going to be no more racism or sexism or homophobia or whatever, because this new, obviously there's exceptions, but this new generation seems to just understand the basics. Hey, it's fairness. It's humanity. We got to protect the planet. Yeah. Not that hard, dude. You don't need to be a liberal or a conservative or an NDP to do that. You can just do that as a human being. And and that's why I love the youth and why I like that they're leaders now. You just push those other ones out. And so I just think the work you're doing, and as you were sitting there saying, oh, and I'm just writing a book at the same time as my PhD, I was thinking, <laughs> oh my gosh, the PhD was just oh, all encompassing when I was doing what it was so hard. And you just happened to be writing a book at the same time. How on <laughs> earth do you do that? Oh, man. And I'll say, like, I, we were talking right before we started recording. You're like, not yeah. balanced super well in my life. And I'm like, echoed, same, I feel. Like, <laughs> I, I'm really lucky, though, in terms of, like, my support systems that I have built up around me for it. I feel like it's probably also just having traveled a lot in my life and so that, and gone to all these places. And so I think for a lot of 20-year-olds, like, they start, like, looking for those experiences. And I feel mm-hmm. grateful that those are ones I've already had. And so I'm, like, really happy these days to, like, just sit at home with, like, my partner and my dog and eat. And so I like, I, that's what I do most of the time. And I sit there and I, they play video games and it's just like the thing. And it like also really feeds me like in a way too, that there's that classic saying that it's like, if you really love what you'll do, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah, there yeah. are all those stipulations around there's all that stuff tied up in it. But it's how I feel like it, instead of being just necessarily labor, and it's not always like this, but it definitely feels life giving like a lot of the time. And yeah, I don't know, I try and make time for it for that reason, I think. That's awesome. And I think the work we do is different than something else. We're not working in finance, for example, and trying to trade stocks and bonds, which if you were doing that 18 hours a day, that would be just, you know, overworking (laughs) and stressful. But we are working in an area that's our lived lives. So it's not like we just shut down and say, oh, okay, native stuff's over. I get to just (laughs) suffer because we're engaged in it. It's our culture. It's our dreams. It's our visions. It's our family, all of that stuff. And so it never that part has never felt like work. Now, when I worked in the federal government, I'll tell you, I was like counting the clock. Oh yeah. my God, when can I go home? But I don't do that anymore. It's like all of those boundaries are gone. And I think yeah. you've got the key here that if it's if it's your passion, if you care about it, then it's not really work. At the same time, though, I've had elders say, such is true, but make sure you don't get overtired. Make sure that you do take time to sleep. You know, that they're 
there is time you have to sleep or go to ceremony or hang out with your friends or your family because you can get overwhelmed. Yeah. And I found that was good advice. I unfortunately don't follow it all the time, but it's one of those people that I guess if you're just of the personality where it's like, I got to do this and this and this and it's exciting and passionate that you can. And you know what's funny? So everybody who is listening to this or going to watch this on YouTube afterwards, she's doing her PhD. She's all over the media. She is just happens to be writing a book. Oh, and wait, she's also starting a new podcast because she seems to have time for that. So what is this podcast all about? Because I am pumped for it. I'm so excited too. I'm like, I'm like happy to be on this one because I feel like your listeners like are the exact type of of listener that I would love to also in my world. I'm like, so I, it's called Red Surgeons. Um, and it's uh, going to be hosted at through the Indigenous Politics Collaboratory, which is just opening up right now. And it's run by Dr. Waiakea Maile, who's this amazing Hawaiian activist scholar. And Resurgence is basically just about, I got really sick and tired of having conversations of just talking about the problems being done to Indigenous people. Like, they're, like those are conversations that I think are necessary to happen, that we have all the time, the way the government violates rights and agreements and all those things. Things. But I was really interested in, and I felt like we didn't have as much space to just talk about the issues and the conversations and the happenings within community for and by ourselves. And so, like, I wanted to talk, for example, about it was really inspired by this quote by Erica Violet Lee, who's like a Nahia mm-hmm. poet and scholar, and I think is amazing. She's amazing. Right. I was yeah. on this panel with her, and she said something that, like, I was like, oh, like, it's a hard <laughs> truth, but it's a truth <laughs> is that, like, even if we got the land back tomorrow, we would still have so many things to work out to think that all of those years of colonialism would just magically evaporate from us and that we wouldn't still have to deal with misogyny and internalized racism and like all of these things is a farce. And so, and I appreciate, I appreciated that sentiment because I was like, that is like great direction to say that like, we need to be doing that work now, all that internal work within ourselves, within our communities. So that when the time comes where we like do where we have mobilized to get land back, to do all these things, that we're ready for it and that we can lead in the way that we're supposed to. And those are the types of conversations I want to have. How are people doing that work within themselves, their community? How are they like rising outside of colonial systems and all of these things? So like I talked to, I want to talk to, I have it all lined up for like young Indigenous mothers. And like, how do you think of motherhood as raising the next generation to be like Indigenous people in our communities that like are, are have the sense of decolonization and values and whatever. And like, I talk about anti-Blackness in Indigenous communities and like a conversation that like, I know a lot of people like that feels sticky, like those like sticky ones. And so that's all I'm like really trying to do with that space is hold it. And those are the things that I think these days are the most interesting. Think about Indigenous futurisms. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> we have our own Wakanda. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I want to do with this space. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. And I'll admit to everybody who's listening, I did have the benefit of hearing episode, you called it zero, I guess it's because it's the introduction. But it's amazing. And you can hear from Riley now the passion in her voice. She's already had a lifetime of experience. She's really passionate about all of this. So The first episode or episode zero is phenomenal. Like I literally cannot wait until this podcast is launched. Anyone who's listening or watching, 
you must go and listen to this podcast when it's launched. You have to follow Riley, yes, no, everywhere. This is going to be, I think, so unique. It fits into all of the native content creators. So there's native podcasts out there, but they each have their own unique twist on it. So you've got Media Indigena, who's been there forever, probably one of the leading Indigenous podcasts about news, what's happening in current affairs, and then panels to talk about it and dissect it. Rick Harp's been leading in that forever and has amazing guests like Kim Tallbear, for example. And then there's other Indigenous podcasts that are targeted at different things. Sometimes it could be like the search for murdered and missing Indigenous women, or it could be a series about something else, or storytelling, or sports. There's a lot of Native podcasts in the States too. And I just think yours just fits right in there. You've got the whole youth focus. You're coming from a youth perspective. My gosh, you're going to be a youth for another decade. It's <laughs> so awesome. And it's the way in which you handle all of these things. We have to uh, deal with the hard stuff, but you're also hopeful about, yeah, we're going to do it. We are going to get land back, but yeah. here's what we need to do in the meantime. So everybody, you must follow Red Surgeons. It's going to be awesome and i hope that when you do have your big celebration that we can just promote it all over the place because you must be really excited about it oh yes i am my heart <laughs> is like bursting that's so lovely thank you i'm like yeah yeah i'm so excited i like have i think one more episode to record before we can do the full launch and yeah i'm gonna be so pumped <laughs> oh my gosh that's awesome do you find in all of this work that you do any challenges? Say there was a, I can't imagine an even younger person than you, but let's just say there was a younger person than you who says, I want to do a PhD or I want to try out politics or maybe I want to write a book or do podcasting. Do, have there been any challenges that you have faced that you could give some advice to a younger person saying this might, you might experience some of this, but here's what I did? Yeah. Ooh, that's a good one. I'm like, I'm trying to think. So like for young people, especially, and I think that this is only, this is a story across young people, but I think it's compounded when you're an Indigenous young person, when you're a queer young person or a woman. And is that you'll get told so many times, and I certainly was, that it's like, if you're doing anything, like if you're a go-getter, like you'll get out there and you'll get in these spaces that like you're told you should be grateful just to have a seat in. Like that you, how many young people like would kill to be in this position and to do all of these things and blah, 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 blah. And at some point I just realized that wasn't a way, like I really thought for a while I was like, oh, like maybe, yes, I am just being like ungrateful for, and those, the, those comments would always come up when I was offering a criticism, when I was like trying to say something like, I think that we need to be doing this differently. They were like, do you know how grateful you should be just to be here and stuff like that? And I, at first, yeah, I thought I was like, oh, maybe I am just like ungrateful or like whatever and all these things. And then I was like, no, like the, like where your power comes from does not come from any seat at any table. It comes from like inside of you and your own integrity and your own gifts and values and how closely you honor those and stick to them. And, and that's something that like, no, hopefully if you get to the right places, other people will also honor and appreciate and all those things, your gift. Yeah. But if they don't like, that's that only diminishes your power. That's all that does. And like, it took me like a really long time, I think, to really believe that. And so like, I would always set myself up 
where I'd go into this place. I was like, yeah, I did the PMYC and it was terrible. It was a horrible experience. But like now a government agency is inviting me back and they promised me that this time it's going to be like a different thing. And I would go and it would happen again and I would leave just shattered again. And like maybe for you, the experience won't be with government. Maybe it's academia. Maybe it's like in your family. Maybe it's in whatever. But like to find out like those places and then work really hard at setting good boundaries. Because the fact of the matter is, I think as well, is that I won't I can't pretend like those forces out there don't exist in the world and that I'm not influenced and affected by them and that I don't have to engage with them in some way. But now I feel really strongly that I get to choose the terms on which I engage with them instead of just having to be grateful for whatever they give me. (laughs) That is like such a scarcity thinking that like every like colonial government loves to make native people think that you should be grateful for whatever the government gives you and for whatever your family has. And that's you never have to be grateful to a colonial enterprise. And so, yeah, like there's to find that line between yes gratitude and also firmness and that you can be both and like holding all of that it's a long-winded sort of thing but like those kind of like the journey of the lessons that I really took yeah my gosh you have the wisdom of our elders at such a young age it's gonna mean that you're just gonna go forth and do anything you want to and be so powerful and that's one of the things you think sometimes gosh if I could just transplant that knowledge back in time to when I was a little girl, what could have or would have been because I'm generations older than you, and things were markedly different. If only I had that kind of wisdom, don't listen to that. Don't let people limit you. Don't, don't limit yourself by all of the racism you're going to face. Just go forth and do all of these things that are going to just create magic in our nations and make everything better. So I think, gosh, this is so inspirational. <laughs> and oftentimes we talk on this podcast when people ask me or in other events, Pam, who are your heroes? Who do you look up to? In fact, there's like the older generation. There's a whole bunch of people that I look up to. But it, there's actually, I look up to the younger generation too because they just have a, di- they grew up in a different context yeah. uh, of resistance and resurgence and revitalization. And that's like a strength and a power that's different experiences. So that's really good advice for young people. So my last question, and I ask this of everybody, is of all the issues that are impacting us right now, genocide, murder to missing, over-incarceration, the foster care crisis, ongoing issues with residential school survivors and day schools, like the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah. What can Canadians do to support Indigenous peoples because they often say, I don't know what to, it seems so big, there's so much, it's so overwhelming. On a day-to-day basis, what could an individual Canadian do to support Native people? What can the average Canadian do? That's always the question. I'm sure it's like the first one that like, if you do a panel, you do a big talk or something. And then the first one is, what can I do? (laughs) My, and it's, I know it's so well-meaning, but my first like response is always, who are you? And I say that not to be like depicting in any way, but to be like, we are different people with different capacities, with different like spheres of influence. A teacher can do something very different than a healthcare worker can, than a mother can, than like all of these things. And so like there, if you really want to know what you can do, that's the best thing. Cause like, I could tell you, go read the TRC, go read and listen and do whatever. But if you're not already doing that, like, I I feel like then we got to start beyond step one. And so I, these days say that the best thing that you can do 
is to go out and find the Indigenous people in your community and make actual, real, substantial relationships with them. And not on the basis that like, so that you can help them in like this white saviory type of way, but so that you to actually grow something with these people and they will tell you what they need. Like, I promise you, Indigenous people in your communities are doing the work, that they are organizing and have needs and know exactly what they are. But it's hard to know what those needs are if you don't have any connection or relationship to them. And so I think that the most important thing that we can all do is think about, do I have any like impactful, enduring relationships with Indigenous people in my life? And if the answer is no, there's like a question of why, and then also how do I cultivate that? And I think that's where you'll get your most meaningful and like context-driven answer, because what Natives need in Thunder Bay is very different than what Natives need in Toronto and what they need out East and in all these places, right? So like, I think the more specific you can get, the better, and that comes through relationships. Such important advice because people who are coming to it and it is the number one question we get at events or whatever else, what can I do? And, and sometimes they'll say, feel very overwhelmed. And it's because they're looking at it uh, like on this national scope. Mm -hmm. There's no native person alive that can deal with everything that's happening from all the nations on a national scope. Like we can't do it even. So it's always about, like you said, coming back to where you are. What are the people in uh, Mississaugas of Scugog asking for right now? Do they need you to sign a petition? Are they asking you to write your prime minister? Are they asking you to donate for legal funds? Are they asking you to come out to a protest? Like, it's what are they asking for right now? And where do you fit in all of that? And I think another misconception is that it's all it's all financial. And financial is important because there's no money for land defenders and water protectors and people who are trying to defend their rights. But in addition to that, there's a billion free ways to help Indigenous peoples, like some of the things that you were just talking about. So I think that's really important advice and why I ask this question on every podcast, because so important. Riley, I can't thank you enough for you being here for sharing all of your wisdom. And I so hope that no one ever calls you an up and comer because you are already here. Just like we're saying, oh, youth are the leaders of the future. No, they're already leaders. And just like you, you are already here. You're standing in your power. I know it's not easy all the time, but you're doing it. And you're literally shining a light for other people to say, this is possible. And follow me and we'll get it done. And I will be doing that. I have been doing that. And I just admire you so much. So excited you're coming out with a podcast. I don't know how often you're going to do it, but I'm going to listen to it the minute it comes out every single time. And thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming here. Oh, Chimi Gretsch was so lovely. I'm so glad we got to do this. We've been on all these like shows, I feel like every once in a while, but never actually get to chat. And I'm so happy about it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I know. Me too. And for those of you watching on YouTube, I've been putting up her website, the name of her podcast, her Twitter. And for anyone who's listening to this in a podcast, all of those links will be in the podcast description so that you can easy access it or Google because that kind of works too most of the time for me anyway. But thank you to all the podcast listeners, all the YouTube viewers, everyone who takes the time to listen, to really think about this, to contribute in some way in a substantive way and not just once in an ongoing matter because we're literally in this relationship forever and for using it like there's professors and teachers using these podcasts in their classrooms. 
keep doing that. That's how you get the word out. Share these podcasts, leave comments. These are all free ways to do it, but you can also support Indigenous content creators on Patreon or buy me a coffee or YouTube subscriptions or Twitch subscriptions, like wherever they're at, you can do all of that. So it's not a choice of either or, there's always something to do. Thank you for supporting this podcast. Till next time, keep living a warrior life.